We are in Acts chapter 16 at the start of the Apostle Paul's second missionary journey. A significant one indeed. Let's, before we go to the word, go before the author in prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord, as we have worshipped in song and in prayer, we worship now in study. Grateful that we have this opportunity to have your word opened to us by the work of your Holy Spirit. And so we pray that your spirit would come now and indeed bear witness to this reading and this proclamation of your word. To that end, as always, we pray for the preacher, knowing that he is not worthy and only by your grace is he able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. We saw last week the start of the second missionary journey that came from a sharp disagreement so that Barnabas goes with John Mark in one direction and Paul and Silas head in another. And so we come to the really the start then of, uh, of the trip uh, and it's given to us in three different parts. And so we're going to read the three parts uh, separately and then look at them in order. So let's go to the first section in which we hear the Macedonian call beginning at verse 6. Listen to God's word. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. When they came to the border of Mysia, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. The beginning of that second missionary journey is Paul going back through the cities, visiting and strengthening the churches that had been planted on the first journey But then verse 6 tells us that Paul and his companions, that would be Silas and Timothy, who he's picked up along the way, that they traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia. If you have a study Bible of some kind, you've got maps in there probably somewhere, and you can see what this region looks like. It is modern-day Turkey, north and west of Israel. What's interesting is that Paul, he was trying to go then south and west into the province of Asia, also known as Asia Minor, and then tries to go north and east into Bithynia. These are all areas known to have been populated by thousands of Jews who introduced the teaching of the Old Testament to the Gentiles in that region. So that's right in the wheelhouse for the Apostle Paul, where he could do ministry as he's done it before, go into the local synagogue and uh, share the good news that Jesus is the Messiah with the Jews as well as the God-fearing Gentiles. But we're told the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus is keeping them from going into those areas. Now, we don't know exactly how the Holy Spirit was communicating his will to these missionary travelers, but it is clear that the Holy Spirit is guiding them every step of the way. Perhaps Silas, who is known to be a prophet, was the one that was receiving the divine directives. So ultimately, they travel in the only direction that is still possible, due west to Troas on the coast of the Aegean Sea. And what will end up happening is that Troas becomes a place where the Apostle Paul visits 
frequently. And isn't that exactly how God works? There's something that you have in mind to do. Somewhere you want to go and God redirects you and sends you in a direction other than what you had planned. And it ends up being exactly right. It can be frustrating along the way as God closes doors, so to speak. It's also sometimes called God's negative guidance where he keeps you from going in a certain direction because he has something else in mind. We may get frustrated and angry and think that God is not answering our prayers, but the sovereign God is the one redirecting us. He is answering our prayers, just not answering what it was that we may have wanted and asked all of which is for the glory of God, who is not our yes man simply giving us what we ask, but who transforms our will and ways. So Paul is really trying to go toward Ephesus, but the Spirit redirects him at this time. He would eventually go back on his third journey and spend significant time in Ephesus, just not now. Paul tries to go to Bithynia, and the Spirit redirects him. Eventually, a church is planted there. The letter of 1 Peter is addressed to God's elect scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And in fact, Bithynia becomes a stronghold of the early Christian church. It is the site of the Council of Nicaea, from which we get the Nicene Creed. So God's got it covered. It's why we discern God's calling in community, and that we remember We serve a sovereign God who has not called any one person or any one church to do it all. When God redirects you, praise the Lord. When God does not give you what you want, praise the Lord. So God redirects Paul to Troas where two really important things happen. Verse 9. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Notice that it's not a vision of Jesus or of an angel telling Paul to go. It is a vision of a man of the region of Macedonia calling for Paul to come. And why? Because we need help. Now, we don't need a special vision to understand what God calls Christians to do. We are to go where help is needed. This would seem obvious, but don't we usually want God to call us, not necessarily where something is needed, or if it's needed, make it also something that's comfortable and comforting for us. Christian comedian John Christ uh, satirically pokes fun at his own millennial generation, but what he says doesn't apply just to millennials. He recently posted a video entitled Millennial Missionaries. With great satire, he quips, We are going to serve humbly the scuba instructors in Aruba. But probably only for three months or so, and then maybe witnessing to the wine connoisseurs and vineyard owners of Tuscany. (laughs) So mission and outreach isn't what makes us comfortable. Mission and outreach also doesn't simply mean sending money for other people to go and do missions. Nor does it mean having a program and expecting throes of people nice, friendly, upper-middle-class people to come pouring in and join the church. We are called to go and minister the gospel where there is need. This also doesn't mean that we go in with the attitude, you have needs and I'm here to supply all your needs because I'm so much better than you. 
Rather, we are simply one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread in Jesus Christ, the bread of life. When we go to where there is need, we find that we need them in our lives as much as they need us, perhaps even more. And we get oriented back to a gospel-centeredness that is about Jesus rather than being about us. The second important thing that happens here is subtly revealed in the pronouns of verse 10. After Paul had seen the vision, we got, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Up to this point in time, the book of Acts has been written in the third person. He, she, they, them. But now it is we and us. Because Luke, the author of the book of Acts, has joined this missionary band. The we is going to change back to they at verse 40, indicating that Luke stays behind in Philippi and then becomes we again in chapter 20 when Paul goes back to Troas and Luke joins back in at that point. And so to Philippi we go. Let's look beginning at verse 11. Listen again to God's word. From Troas we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace. And the next day on to Neapolis. From there we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony, and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Commentators who know much more about ancient travel in the world, in the ancient world, uh, say that verse 11 is the very definition of smooth sailing, that they were able to go from Troas straight to Samothrace and then the next day to Neapolis is a two-day trip that more often took up to five days, as it will later in Acts chapter 20. Favorable winds and sea conditions make this trip this speedy. When God paves the way, he really paves the way. We may get frustrated as God redirects us, but then as soon as we go the direction God intends, it's smooth sailing. Now, it's, of course, not always the case, and ease does not always indicate God's will, but sometimes it does, especially when you've been beating your head against a wall in the other direction. When Jen and I were first married, the plan was uh, for me to go to seminary in Richmond, Virginia, and for two years, Jen was trying to find a teaching job in that area uh, while I was making preparations for seminary and to no avail. Well, two months before uh, we were supposed to head off to Virginia with still no job uh, on the horizon, uh, out of nowhere, a friend suggested I check out this new seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando, Florida. As we looked at what the seminary was and what it had to offer, we began to think this might be the place we're supposed to go. Well, Jen flew down and within 24 hours had a great job and a place for us to live. Two years of banging our head in one direction and 24 hours 
of smooth sailing in our three years could not have been any better. The ministry in Philippi is unlike what Paul experienced in his first journey. There is apparently not a sizable Jewish population. There was no local synagogue. And so instead, on the Sabbath, they go down to what would have been the Gangites River, and a group of women gather, and Paul shares the gospel with them. My former New Testament professor, Simon Kistemacher, observes, although the group is small, the presence of the Lord is powerful. It's a great encouragement to us in a world that often talks about numbers. And we remember that it's not the size of the group. It's not about the program. It's about the ministry of the gospel. We may be tempted to boast about a mission initiative where hundreds are saved, a church with thousands in worship at multiple campuses. God is pleased to grab hold of one heart to show it is about him and not about us. The heart that the Lord grabs is that of Lydia, verse 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. It's a great description of how the Lord works. Opened her heart to respond. It is the Lord who opens the heart. It's the Lord who does the miraculous work of regeneration, that we might be born again. A person does not respond to the gospel because we shared it so well. A person responds to the gospel because the Lord has made it so. We affirmed earlier in our worship this morning, God's effectual calling, enlightening our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. Our minds are enlightened not because we're smarter, cuter, better in any way, but simply because God makes it so. It is an encouragement for us to go and do evangelism and know it's not how effective we do evangelism, but to watch the effectiveness of God to accomplish evangelism. And so Lydia invites them to her home where she and all the members of her household are baptized. And Lydia's home becomes the meeting place for the church the first Christian church in Europe. Read Paul's letter to the Philippians sometime this week, a letter full of joy, and think about Lydia and the people meeting at her house because the Lord made it so. And so there's a sense in which the man of Macedonia turns out to be the woman of Macedonia, Lydia. But as we move to this next section, there are still two more people, a slave girl and a Roman jailer who God intends to deliver. And so we've seen that God's calling to Paul to Philippi couldn't be more clear, marked with miraculous success, but that doesn't mean that everything is rainbows and unicorns, right? Let's pick up at verse 16. Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days, and finally Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, 
they seized Paul and Silas, dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. The other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up, and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order Release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave, go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens, and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates and When they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. Then they left. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed and has success, the enemy opposes and obstructs the work of the church. Such spiritual battles were normative during the ministry of Jesus and the apostles as the kingdom of Christ was inaugurated. Spiritual battles still exist, but in a different way during our present church age. We are not apostles driving out demons. We are Christians applying the gospel to every aspect of life and existence. And so verse 16 tells us about a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future in the NIV. Others translate that she had a spirit of divination. The Greek text actually says she had a spirit of pythona, referring to the legendary python snake that guarded the nearby Delphic oracle. And it was said to have been slain by the god of prophecy Apollo, or perhaps the python was simply sacred to Apollo. Either way, the sense is that this Greek god of prophecy, Apollo, spoke through the slave girl. And so she made money by fortune-telling or soothsaying in the King James. The word 
actually translated there is related to our word for uh, manic. So the deal is that she would go into a sort of trance, behave in an erratic manner, and the demon would speak through her. The whole thing is a bit crazy, and that's the idea. But this is crazy that makes money. So it appears that Paul is trying to avoid her the way that sometimes in our lives we need to avoid some crazy. You know what I'm talking about, right? At work or just in other places, you kind of avoid the crazy because if you confront it head on, it's going to get explosive. Well, the demons are trying to cause Paul trouble by shouting through this slave girl. These men are servants of the most high God who are telling you the way to be saved. If that was a statement that was made as a profession from the heart of a believer, it would be a grand declaration of faith. But here it is the forces of Satan at work in a defenseless slave girl. And so Paul rebukes, not the girl, but rebukes the demon who goes out of her And it is then presumed that the slave girl receives the gift of salvation and becomes part of the Philippian church. Well, the owners of the slave girl, that description, owners of the slave girl, tells you already the type of people that we're dealing with, get upset because they've lost this source of income. So they seize Paul and Silas, apparently Timothy and Luke were somehow overlooked, and bring them before the local magistrates. And do these men complain that Paul drove out a demon? from a girl so that they lost their source of income because that's what they're really angry about. Is that what they complain about? No. They make us about nationality. These men are Jews, throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. Well, it's the job of the magistrates to maintain peace and order. And so these men play on the fears of political unrest and make it about Roman versus Jewish customs. Similar to what we experience today, it's fine for you to be a Christian in private as long as it isn't brought into the business world or political policy. So these men are able to stir up the mob mentality of the crowd and win the crowd to their position. So the magistrates order Paul and Silas to be stripped and beaten with rods, which is really not a legal procedure, but the magistrates are responding to the frenzy of the crowd. And Paul and Silas are thrown into the inner cell designed for the worst criminals and put in stocks, none of which is really necessary when you just finished beating a person within an inch of their life. Wrongly accused, wrongly beaten, wrongly imprisoned. How would you respond? Yeah, me too. It would be tempting to think, Maybe we never should have come to Philippi in the first place to talk about how unfair the whole thing is. But what do Paul and Silas actually do? They begin praying and singing hymns to God. Yeah, that's what we should do. Earlier in the service, we read from Psalm 119. My comfort in my suffering is this, your promise preserves my life. The arrogant mock me without restraint, but I do not turn from your law. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge. Your decrees are the theme of my song wherever I lodge, even wrongfully imprisoned. And here Paul and Silas not only edify themselves, but witness to and encourage the other prisoners. A place usually full of curses has become a place of prayer and praise. 
speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. And similarly to the Colossian church, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with wisdom and as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And to the Philippian church, perhaps even to some who had been there in prison with him, Paul wrote, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say again, rejoice. It's not theological theory, but truth applied to real life. It's also not theory, but truth that God is a redeeming God who takes what is wrong, takes what is bad, even takes what is evil and transforms it into good. Earthquakes were not necessarily uncommon in Philippi, but the providential timing and placement and result shows that God uses both supernatural and natural means as miracles. The prisoners are singing, the jailer is sleeping, you would think it would be the other way around, and suddenly it is the jailer who is in trouble, thinking that all the prisoners have escaped on his watch, and he's about to kill himself when Paul shouts, don't harm yourself, we are all here. Now the fact that no one sought to escape when they had opportunity is miraculous in itself. But what the jailer says next is even more miraculous. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He has fallen trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas, somehow aware that this earthquake was of the Lord and these men were truly messengers of the way to salvation. And so Paul says, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And that is exactly what happened. In the middle of the night, the jailer takes Paul and Silas to his home where they share the gospel with his whole household and they were all effectually called by God and saved through Jesus Christ to become more unlikely members of the Philippian church. A great Bible teacher, John Stott, comments this. The head of a Jewish household would use the same prayer every morning giving thanks that God had not made him a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. But here were representatives of these three despised categories, redeemed and united in Christ. For truly, as Paul had recently written to the Galatians, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Our passage has sort of a postscript or an epilogue to this account. Verse 35 tells us that when daylight came, the magistrates had given orders for the missionaries to be released. Perhaps it's because they uh, realized that there was no real charge against them. But Paul's response is essentially to say, I don't think so. Not so fast. You can't just beat us without a trial, imprison us, and then ask us to leave quietly. How about you escort us out? Now, why did Paul insist on this? He may have had in mind the safety of the church that he would be leaving behind. The officers find out that Paul and Silas are Roman citizens, wrongly beaten and imprisoned, which means the magistrates are in big trouble if Paul wants to get them in trouble. So they will likely treat the church favorably. God's got it covered. Paul and Silas go to Lydia's house and encourage this unlikely group of Christians who have nothing in common but Christ. 
in the last three words of our passage, then they left, are back in the third person, which suggests that Luke stays behind in Philippi to pastor this new church. The suffering of Paul and Silas echo the suffering of Jesus, a suffering that brings redemptive good out of evil. The Lord calls us to overcome evil with good, echoing Christ. The Lord calls us to go to those who are in need, echoing Christ who came to us in our need. The Lord calls us to worship and serve in unity where the only thing we may have in common is Christ. And we answer that call because the truth has set us free. Amen.